everybody. This is Nick Fletcher, and this is our most recent episode of Interview with the PD Pod. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Will McKenzie, who is professor and chair of pediatric orthopedics at the Nemours AI DuPont Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware. Will is a truly fascinating guy. He's a joy to talk to, and I think that he's very unique in a number of ways. First of all, he takes care of an area of pediatric orthopedics that, frankly, terrifies a lot of people. Um, He takes care of some of the most complex skeletal dysplasias, managing very unique cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spinal deformities, lower extremity deformities, pelvic challenges, and uh, limb lengthening issues. Um, And he's done so for the majority of his career. If you look at his CV and his PubMed list is over 140 publications. It's predominantly on complex skeletal dysplasias. And he talks about some of the research things that they've been able to find during this podcast. Will is also unique in that he's got a son in orthopedics. And I think that this is a fascinating thing. His son, Stuart, joined their practice uh, not long ago and is uh, likely going to be one of the successors of Will's practice, which I think is also a very unique thing. Finally, I think Will is very insightful, and I get a little bit into it during the podcast as to how we met, but he actually approached me to chat initially and is just a joy to talk to, and I think we'll add a lot to the listener with regards to his knowledge of building a practice, coming into the complexities of an area such as skeletal dysplasias, and building a career in children's orthopedics. So I appreciate all of your support as always. Thank you for supporting this concept. Thank you to Carter Clements for his tireless work on this process. And please enjoy our wide-ranging and I found very enlightening conversation on pediatric orthopedics with Will McKenzie. Thank you. So we are recording and this is Nick Fletcher and it is a beautiful Sunday morning in Atlanta. And I'm having the opportunity this morning to talk with Will McKenzie, who is up in Delaware, and we are going to be chatting for a little while to hear about his story and uh, learn about how he got to where he's at and what kind of uh, practice he's developed and a whole host of things. So, Will, thank you so much for agreeing to do this and for going along with the technological challenges of creating a podcast. You're so welcome, Nick. Good morning. Good morning. I'm so happy to know that Atlanta is on the same time zone as myself. That's right. I That's always right. thought we sorted you were that a little out. farther west. <laughs> so I wanted to, to jump right in and, and learn a little bit about your background. Um, uh, clearly, you grew up a long way away from where I am right now in the northwest corner of North America. And my understanding is that you grew up in in and around British Columbia. Um, tell me a little bit about that. What kind of kid were you? Where did you grow up? Tell me a little bit about your family. Well, I grew up in Vancouver, which is the the westernmost place in Canada, or almost. Vancouver Island is between Vancouver and the Pacific. I uh, was born in Vancouver. Uh, I have uh, two siblings. My brother is an engineer, and my sister has had several careers as a a chef, and now is uh, living on Vancouver Island in a lovely area. My parents were a very interesting pair. My mother was a brilliant woman who was English. My father was equally brilliant, but uh, had an interesting career um, and finished up as a person who invested for families. I had a wonderful childhood. I went to a fabulous school. I had a wonderful education. 
I think I could have taken better advantage of it and worked a little harder. We had a, a fun childhood. We had a summer place north of Vancouver on a little island. I played a lot of sports. I ended up playing primarily rugby, which I played uh, into university and at a reasonable level. I w- played internationally and at an under-21 level and then in Canada at an older age. It was all good memories. That's good. Now, you've got, uh, obviously, you've delved into medicine and, and gotten into medicine. Was that something that had come out early on? Was that always the track that you were going on and rugby was just a little bit of a, a sideshow or did medicine come late to you? I was not a child who realized in high school or early university I wanted to go into medicine. I was influenced. I had an uncle who's a family doctor who I had tremendous respect for. And I think I was probably influenced by him. But rugby was always just a sideline. It was never an important. Um, I, I never thought of myself of a, a, doing a career in rugby. I was always very interested in biology. It was probably the area that I found most interesting in high school. I had an amazing biology teacher. I went into biology at the University of British Columbia and I started in oceanography, actually, and then decided I wanted to go into medicine. It took me a year or so, but uh, I ended up in medicine at the University of British Columbia and did my uh, medical education there, which was a a very traditional training, uh, which I appreciated. I think I learned better with a more traditional system of learning anatomy and pharmacology independently. But of course, newer systems are very, very different. Yeah, it's amazing how they've changed over time. And, you know, obviously, I'm a little bit closer to graduation from medical school than you are, but the current system doesn't really look anything like what it did, you know, 15 18 years ago when I was in medical school. Well, I think it's an ideal system for developing family practitioners, and it might not be ideal for people interested in subspecialty work. I completely agree, and I think that that probably shows up a bit in our, you know, in our understanding and our review of applicants, uh, because I feel as though some of the knowledge of the basic sciences within medical school that were so critical, I think, to our development, to my development at least, uh, have gone by the wayside. I mean, now our guys and gals have a year of research, which is great for building a CV and it's great for understanding the research machine and the process. But at the end of the day, they still struggle with some of the concepts of anatomy because they had it force-fed to them for a, a reasonably short amount of time. Yep. So after med school, you ended up doing your residency in British Columbia, but then ended up at DuPont for your fellowship. And obviously, that's where you stayed. Um, I'm curious about two things. One is, how did pediatric orthopedics come out of that? Because I'm, I'm not as familiar with the pediatric orthopedic lineage at, at uh, University of British Columbia, but also what sort of mentors at that stage of your career guided you down towards DuPont? Well, it probably started a little bit earlier than that. Um, there's a man called Bob McGraw, Robert McGraw, who was a president of the Canadian Orthopedic, very involved in the American Orthopedic Association. He was the chair of orthopedics. And when I was in fourth year medicine, he came up to me and said, Mackenzie, what are you going to do? And I said, I think I'm going to do orthopedics, sir. And he said, okay, well, then you're starting next year here. 
<laughs> and I went, well, that's going to be difficult, sir, because I've con- I've, I'm on my way to New Zealand to do an 18-month internship. And he said, well, that would be very inconvenient. And so um, I ended up in Montreal, which, like so many things in our lives, was just, uh, just amazing. I met some great people, uh, great orthopedic surgeons in Montreal, a large group of pediatric orthopedic surgeons. And so when I came back into my residency, we had the opportunity to do peds quite early in our residency. And I met uh, Steve Treadwell, Rick Beauchamp, Mike Bell. Um, they're all people known to your ancestors. And I suppose Steve, who was the division chief at the time, had the greatest influence on me. He was a brilliant, uh, hardworking man. He had developed a, an amazing research group. And more importantly, he had done a traveling fellowship uh, very early in his career and had gone to DuPont. So when he and I talked about what I was interested in and PEDS was the main area, he phoned up his old buddies at the DuPont Institute, which was Dean and Bill Bennell. And uh, they said, well, send him down if he wants to do a fellowship. and. Uh, that is exactly how I ended up with my fellowship at DuPont. <laughs> a little bit of a different I mean, time. It was a very different time. And of course, I had did not have the experience to know where I should have gone, but it turned out to be a very interesting opportunity. And I think I was in an ideal position to take advantage of it because Steve was an excellent spine surgeon. And like all of our careers, we meet people. So... I was involved in doing the old CD instrumentation very early in the 80s. So Steve trained me in spine. The other guys trained me in other areas of pediatric orthopedics during my residency. And so when I arrived at the Institute, I was a good spine surgeon, and I also had good extremity surgery skills as well. And so they had never done a CD at DuPont when I did started my fellowship in 86. So Randy Betts, who had been a fellow a few years before, and I, I think, did the first CD at DuPont. And Dean McEwen was still there. He left in the spring of my fellowship year, and he was absolutely amazing with me. Tremendous memories, tremendous advice, really interesting man in a really difficult transition in his career just before he went to Louisiana. It was an absolute fluke ended up at DuPont. And, you know, um, I don't know if it was an ideal fellowship or not, but I sure enjoyed it. My family enjoyed it. We had Martha and I had two boys at the time. We drove across the country with about 1500 bucks and had to buy, <laughs> had to buy a new transmission in um, North Dakota. And that took a thousand bucks of it away. Oh, <laughs> and then I arrived at DuPont in a big station wagon with two kids and a wife and not really knowing where I was going to live or what was going to happen. We thought, I thought I was moving to this giant beltway that stretched between Boston and Washington. And the Institute, as it was called then, was in, in the countryside on this, you know, <laughs> 400 acre estate that was built by Alfred I. DuPont. Um, amazing house and garden. But anyway. 
That's a great story. So, so do you feel as though the fellowship was a fellowship in, in the way that you and I look at them in sort of modern times, or was it almost a year long interview, if you will, was it a, or a year long training session, I should say, where they said they looked at you and they, they knew that they needed some new experience and interest in, for example, spine surgery. And this was just a continual education where you were going to start ramping up a practice early on, or was this really felt out to be, you know, this is a training year and then we'll see what happens after that. So several things happened. I had no intent of, of staying at DuPont. As a matter of fact, you probably don't realize this, but I left DuPont, went back to Canada, did my exams, and practiced in Vancouver for five years with Steve oh, okay. and Rick and Mike. So I'll, I'll explain that in a second. But, you know, Dean McEwen had a very interesting approach. Although I did several cases with him, he, his approach to a fellowship was, Will, you are not here to operate all year. You've already been trained in surgical skills. You're here to observe what we do and incorporate that into your experience, Hmm. which is very, very different than most of our fellows are attempting to accomplish. I appreciated that. I did a huge amount of reading. It was a very, as you know, it was at that time, it was a cold pediatric orthopedic institution. There was no, um, there was no emergency. There was a lot of time to read. And I was introduced to a man called Charlie Scott, who was a geneticist who trained under McCusick. Oh, wow. Who was the same vintage as Judy Hall, David in, at Cedar sinai Rick Paul, Rich Pauly. It was an interesting group of people. And Charlie was brought from Texas to DuPont to basically start, do genetics, but start a dysplasia program. And um, he immediately grabbed me and pulled me into that environment. And I absolutely loved it. And it started me, I think I read hundreds of articles on epiphyseal dysplasia that year and found out how confused the world was about it. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it was an opportunity to really cement my interest in skeletal dysplasia. Well, I want to spend quite a bit of time on that later on, but that's fascinating. And so that really started at a young age. And then you said that afterwards, you went back to Vancouver Was there an opportunity that was sort of presented that perhaps down the road this would work out for you to come back? Or was the thought that you and Martha would be just heading back up to Vancouver and, you know, setting up shop there? The latter. Okay. So, but you know what happened during my fellowship? There was a significant evolution in the program at DuPont. Bill Bennell became the chief. Dean moved to Louisiana Several other people moved during that year. And actually, Bill Bennell hired me as a staff surgeon in April of my fellowship year. There were four clinical fellows and innumerable research fellows at that time. And suddenly, I became one of the staff. And it was a very awkward experience, but it really did a lot for me because I... Although I was a bright, capable, I think I was an extremely well-informed orthopedic surgeon. 
I wasn't great at independent execution, you know, making decisions. And I learned a lot during that number of months. And when I went back to Vancouver, I think it really helped me in the evolution of my practice. Tell me a little more about that. That's interesting. So what do you think changed? What allowed you to to get into that new realm where you were more comfortable making independent decisions? I was forced into it. One day I was a fellow and the next day I was the guy in charge. And I suppose that could have been a recipe for failure depending on the individual, but it took me a bit and I was well supported and it was a very, very valuable time. This is something that we see occurring on a regular basis now, you guys probably do as well with your fellows, in that the way that education is structured in 2020, we have our residents, and I think that there's a little bit less autonomy in the residents from an operating standpoint, even than there was when I was there, and I'm sure probably for sure when you were going through. And then the fellows, the same. We give them graduated autonomy, but really with regards to them performing cases at a almost an attending level, it's probably, again, not to the same extent that I had or that you had. And so a lot of them come out with maybe only a couple of months where they were making a lot of truly independent decisions in terms of how they were going to structure a, a case, whether or not they were going to operate at all, et cetera, et cetera. How do you take the experience that you had, which I think is, I mean, you're alluding to the fact that it was a very good one, a very beneficial one, although a little bit of a hard pill to swallow at times, and educate your fellows about how are you going to become you know, an independent operator, an independent surgeon. You know, that's interesting. I, I don't view it quite the same way. Okay. I think that I just had a, a remarkable experience where during my fellowship, I was suddenly elevated to a staff position. I think that during most of my fellowship that I was given very little autonomy, Right. You know, you were involved in the cases, but you were not leading the cases or making decisions. I think our fellows currently have that opportunity much more than I had. We've had several, as you know, we're very strong in spine in our institution. And we've had fellows who have done hundreds of spine cases, not completely independently. We're always there, but they are performing as an associate surgeon. So I think that fellows today get quite a bit of opportunity for autonomy. You know, trauma cases at night, we're always there. We're there for every single case, but the fellows do them and they often take the resident through them with us sitting in the corner. I don't do call anymore, but I used to have, that was my most fun to sit in the corner and yell out comments. Yeah, to heckle them a little bit. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. I agree. That is, uh, and and we do that. I guess the the question was the that point where you are left alone in a case doesn't happen at least at our institution the same way it used to, other than some trauma cases. But my, I mean, I remember my first spine very well in practice, and you know, it was a five hour five level fusion, which now is a a two hour operation, skin to skin. But uh, so much of that was decision making, even though I'd done it, you know, a 100 times in fellowship in Dallas, doing it on your own was different. And at least having that autonomy, I think is because we are always in the room is it's challenging. I think it's challenging for new surgeons to come out and realize, oh, yeah, this is me. You know, nobody on the other side of the table is telling me, yeah, I probably would move my hand a little bit there. 
Yes, and I completely agree. Although it's interesting that some individuals are much more capable of making that transition than others. It may be something that will occur over months to years, or in some individuals, it never happens. You know, they, uh, they never feel comfortable in the operating room. Well, I wanted to get back to the story because I'm still fascinated as to how you ended up back sort of in the, in the situation where you're at now. Can you continue that and, and sure. uh, tie up that story? Sure. So I went back to Vancouver. I had a practice waiting for me. Steve was expecting me back. I joined uh, three other remarkable surgeons. And I think we have to remember that surgeons can have excellent skills in judgment in one area, but not in another. And when we look at who our mentors were, there isn't any one mentor for me. There's many because they all had areas where they were very good and areas where they were not as good. So my point here is when I went back to Vancouver, I had three senior partners who were excellent mentors in very, very different ways. And I entered an extremely busy practice, quickly became involved in multiple areas of surgery. And Another area that I developed while I was in Vancouver was there was a guy called Chris Beauchamp, Christopher Beauchamp, and you may know his name, but he ended up moving to the United States after I did and uh, became the chief at the Mayo Extension in uh, Phoenix, Scottsdale. He was a tumor surgeon. There was no tumor surgeon at the Children's. Chris was a fellowship-trained tumor surgeon in the adult hospital in Vancouver. And he basically encouraged me to take over the oncologic or pediatric orthopedic surgery. And I learned an amazing amount of surgery from him. And it built on, when I was doing in my residency, I did some research for a year and taught anatomy. And so I had a very, very strong anatomy background and that experience of tumor surgeons surgery sort of operating outside the boundaries of normal surgical approaches had a huge impact on me. So there I was in Vancouver for five years. Everything was going well. I was a Vancouver boy. I had this huge practice, but I was a hardworking private pediatric orthopedic surgeon working in an academic environment. I was starting to do a lot of basic science research. I had met a young man called Alistair Younger, who is now developed into a foot and ankle surgeon who did and who was an ABC traveling fellow. He helped me do some basic science research on sheep looking at the forces of limb lengthening. And it became obvious that I just did not have the time to run a practice, make enough money to support my family, and do basic science research. And right at that time, which was about five years into my practice, I got a letter from Richard Bowen at the Institute. It would, the name had changed at that point. And he invited me back and said, uh, we'd love for you to consider uh, coming back here to, um, to work. And I went through a very, very tough decision. Um, I was leaving my family, uh, my wife's family in Vancouver, moving my kids at an age that was, you know, difficult. But I understood DuPont. 
there was excellent research support. They had a good system. It was a salaried position. And actually, I moved to DuPont and got paid less money than Vancouver. But the environment was such, living in the country, it was not a problem. And I had a, by then, I had developed a very great interest in dysplasia. And Charlie Scott was still there. And I knew there would be a big opportunity to develop a dysplasia group. So we got back in the car and drove back to Wilmington. Hopefully with more than $1,500 this time. Actually, I didn't drive back. You know what I did? Martha and the kids flew into Wilmington, and I went through Chicago where I did my exams, my oral exams, because I had done my writtens years ago, years before, but uh, I got the last year of doing half unknowns and half my own cases. And Ah. so by then, I was a tumor surgeon, a spine surgeon, a Lizeroff surgeon. I was doing anter zilkis at the time. Mm -hmm. And when I had to discuss my own cases, let me tell you, there was a lot of controversy. (laughs) I can imagine. I can imagine. (laughs) Who is this guy? Why are we bringing him back to the U.S.? (laughs) That's good. So obviously, at this point, you're, you're getting back to the Institute. Outside of the skull displays and the opportunity to work with Charlie and sort of the, developing something that probably did not have that much interest in, at a lot of other centers, what other opportunities were available to you that you feel like you took a hold of and, and really went with? And then on the flip side, were there any opportunities early on that you sort of wish in hindsight that you'd taken? Well, I think the main opportunity at DuPont and I really have to give you the full name now. It's Nemours, Alfred right, right. I. DuPont Hospital for Children. We, as you know, have a, a large trust. And when the Institute, as it was called, started in 1940 through about into the mid-late 80s, right around the time I did my fellowship, 100% of the funding came from an annual transfer from the trust. Oh, wow. Today, I I think our budget's in the one and a half billion range. The transfer is worth probably 10%. Yeah. But that 10% provides a cushion that allows true multidisciplinary clinics. So when you, as an orthopedic surgeon, are asked to join the muscular dystrophy clinic, for example, most Orthopedic surgeons in this country would say, I can't do that. Um, I'm, I'm going to go. There's going to be a neurologist, a pulmonologist, and a, and a whatever. And I can't, you know, I can't spend the morning seeing six or eight people. And at our institution, that is much easier. The funding is established to allow occasional clinics that are multidisciplinary and not as productive as it may be in a private environment. So that was one area. And I was involved in muscular dystrophy clinic, and I started a skeletal dysplasia clinic. And it allowed us to focus on the patient and not worry about the income. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the questions that I had had for you is that if you look at the national structure of most multidisciplinary clinics, and the one that I participate in most at our institution is the myeloma meningocele clinic, 
I remember talking with Steve Richards, who was one of my great mentors in fellowship. I asked him about it because he's obviously a little bit further into his career. And he said that one of the things that he always struggled with was that in most environments, the Milo Clinic becomes filled by whoever the, the most junior attending is. And the more senior guys sort of leave it to them so that they can go with their high volume practice. And Steve said, you know, in my world, this is the most challenging patient population that I have. Why would I have those patients, you know, suffer through the learning curve of young surgeon after young surgeon? And that's why he's taken it. And I have done so as well. And now, I mean, I've had the opportunity to pass off some of my multidisciplinary clinics because as you point out, they're not the high volume clinics, but the patients are incredibly complex. And I think that the patient's probably are done a little bit of a disservice by having somebody young come about over and over. So how do you, because you're going to have all these fellows who are going to come through the process with you, and then they're going to go out to their own world. How do you counsel your fellows about how to take what they've learned at uh, Nemours and bring it into their practice when they get into more of a traditional private practice or you know academic practice where volume is king? Well, you used uh, Steve as an example, and he's, a, he's someone who I have tremendous respect for. But remember, where you did your fellowship and where he practices is, has similarities to where I yes. practice. So I think a successful practice is a culmination of many, many things. If a young surgeon's focus is income and productivity solely. I think it's something that is good for some people, but I think that it can limit, as you suggested, a very, very interesting and environment that leads to improved development of skills and management. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. There has to be some part of your practice where you're going to evolve your skills and maybe isn't quite as remunerative. And I think it's important to get out of your comfort zone on a regular basis so that you think, you know, you can sort of think with a longitudinal time frame as opposed to, you know, which a lot of these kids, because of the fact this isn't going to be the only time you're going to see them. It's not a, you know, a 55 degree right thoracic curvature where you can basically do a surgery see them a couple of times and then hopefully all's well and they and they go off. But these are kids who are going to need care forever. And you're probably not, at least on my end, I'm not going to always be confident that I'm doing the right thing at that time, that you're constantly sort of reevaluating, see whether or not that was the right thing. I couldn't agree more with that. Well, you're evaluating your own practice. You're also sending me a case to look at and think about. And you're hopefully using other mentors to help you during the evolution of that process. And, you know, in my area, specifically skeletal dysplasia, I meet children as babies and I go to their weddings. You mm -hmm. know, it's very interesting. So it is such that at our institution, we're supposedly limited to age 21, but in the area of congenital heart disease and skeletal dysplasia, we follow through till 35. And the reason is because the problems that young adults have are identical to the ones that occur through their second decade. And so who better skilled and, and experienced in their care than a pediatric orthopedic surgeon? We would love to do it in cerebral palsy, and we probably will evolve to that in the future. That transitional age, which is so difficult, yeah, for, for, for those children to get care for when they're becoming young adults. Yeah. 
So I want to get back to the uh, skeletal dysplasia of origins for a second, because you mentioned Charlie and you mentioned the, the genetic side of things. I still want to learn more about how that became your passion early on. How, did, how was that the one thing that you chose? Because my understanding was, uh, I mean, even if you look at it now, there aren't tons of centers out there that do a tremendous amount of it and certainly nothing like what you built. So what was the blueprint that you were going on and how did, outside of just being tied in with somebody who could share your interests on the genetic and research level and basic science level, how did this love affair with skeletal dysplasia start? <laughs> well, it was not built in a year. It was built in a career. So I mentioned to you during my fellowship how I became very interested in skeletal dysplasia. And I returned to Vancouver just when Judy Hall arrived in Vancouver from Seattle. And Judy, in addition to her work in arthrogryposis, had done a huge amount of work in skeletal dysplasia. So she became an influence as well. I started to see a lot of skeletal dysplasia patients in Vancouver. Steve Treadwell had a similar interest, and he passed those patients on to me. And I uh, became involved in the in what is you would consider the LPA of Canada. And I became more and more interested in these kids. When I moved back to DuPont, there was a large skeletal dysplasia practice that was being managed by Dan Mason. And I slowly worked with him and then started to create more of a clinic. And the question is, how do you create a multidisciplinary clinic? Well, you have to be a people person. You have to talk to people in your institution who would be resources. You have to encourage people to move to your institution. So as an example of the prior, we have a neurosurgeon who I've become extremely close with. I do most of my cervical spine surgery and decompression surgery with him. We work extremely well together and the anesthesia side of it. A woman called Mary Thoreau became very interested. She became part of our team. Charlie Scott retired. A guy called Mike Bober was hired, who actually came from Texas as well. He is a brilliant geneticist who has worked extremely well to develop that end of the practice. We now have two geneticists, two genetic counselors. Mike is very interested in basic science research and almost all of our trials at our institution, the new dysplasia trials are managed by Mike. I hired a guy uh, a number of years ago from St. Louis, his name's Shunji Tamatsu, who is probably the most experienced and knowledgeable person in the area of Morchio syndrome in the world. Interesting individual that has done a lot of basic science work in this area and so on. It, it evolves. We have a meeting every Thursday morning, what we call our skeletal dysplasia group from eight to nine, just before our main, one of our main clinics. And there were 17 or 18 people around that desk. And they ranged from clinical to research coordinators to geneticists to orthopedists, neurosurgery, anesthesia. It was amazing to see. And it's just occurred over many, many years. 
So can one of your fellows who wants to go out into practice and, and obviously has to have a little bit of institutional support to do this, can they replicate that without 17 people? And how, what, what would that look sure like early on? You, you do what, that. what are the bare bones? Well, we do. But what are the bare bones that you think are necessary to create a successful skeletal dysplasia clinic or practice, I should say? Be a doctor, not an orthopedic surgeon first. Okay. There are many very capable pediatric orthopedic surgeons in this country. Very, very many. There's hardly a person I know who is not capable of doing the things that I do. What's different at our institution is that we consider the whole person. I think that there is a tendency in most orthopedic practices to manage the orthopedic problem without thinking of other orthopedic problems that may have an impact or other metabolic or organ issues that may be extremely important to consider. So in Morchial syndrome, we described just in the last few years, a very complex airway problem that occurs in usually in the second decade. And so the trachea takes a turn to the right at the entrance to the thorax and gets compressed by the anominate. It's a complex relationship that's related to a high takeoff of the anominate, but it ends up with a trachea that cannot be intubated. Many, many kids have not survived procedures in morchial syndrome because of this tracheal anomaly. And the reason we were able to work this out is because we follow 75 kids with morchial. And if you do not have a multidisciplinary approach to these children, you're going to hurt them. If you take a child with a thoracolumbar kyphosis in achondroplasia and put him to sleep for four hours to fix his legs, and he wakes up paralyzed, it's because you didn't understand the significance of the spinal stenosis and that you needed to monitor that individual. Right. And that's probably a better example. No, I think those are both great examples. So can I make one other comment? Can I yes, make one other do. comment? A child with achondroplasia needs a pediatric physician who understands the issues with achondroplasia. Frame and magnum stenosis apnea related to central compression or obstructive, the need for nighttime CPAP, the management of their obesity, the management of their metabolic aspects, such as management of glucose, things like that. Most institutions have that sometimes in very isolated areas. The orthopedic surgeons aren't very involved with it. Who is going to follow their head circumference to make sure that they're not jumping a percentile and they may have hydrocephalus? Who's going to make sure that they see the ENT surgeon for their otit recurrent otitis media that can lead to hearing loss? And if they're going to need management of one of those things, who's going to make sure that the entire team understands about the anesthetic or neurological issues? Right. So I guess, I mean, you've had a number of fellows who have come out. Do you have examples of people who have come out and successfully created what you would consider a successful grassroots, bottom-up skeletal dysplasia practice based on their experience with you at Nemours? 
There's actually several who are evolving in that way. We had several spine surgeons uh, throughout the country who are who have been quite experienced in skeletal dysplasia that are applying the same principles that we have applied here at a much smaller scale. I have several fellows who work with me managing various issues in children with skeletal dysplasia that all they needed was a little help to understand the issues they needed to look out for. And I think there's no one that's developed exactly the same program, but aspects of it are being developed. Probably Clayne White in Seattle is someone I've worked very closely with, and he is working hard to develop a similar program there. There are other programs that were successful in the past that have seen a change in personnel that are rebuilding. I think one of the biggest challenges, and again, obviously, I share a love and an interest of skeletal dysplasias, but like I was alluding to, nobody's done what you've done. But I also, like I mentioned, take care of the myelo patients, or at least a component of our myelo patients. And when I talk to our fellows and our residents, I think one of the challenges with both of them is these are really complex kids. We take care of a lot of complex problems in children's orthopedics, but this is, you know, this is the, the zenith of complexity a lot of times. And with complexity, as you were discussing with, when you were mentioning, you know, Morchio's kids who don't survive surgery or achondroplastic children who sustain a neurologic injury related to a non-spine-related procedure, how do you counsel your fellows and how have you sort of dealt with the complexities and the complications that come with managing such a, a complex area? Oh, boy. That's hard. So the first thing is that the patient has to be extremely well educated about the complications that can occur with management. I've had one relatively recent irreversible neurologic problem, and I'm still not quite sure what the cause was, but it was very, very difficult psychologically for me. The answer to that question is we're all extremely hurt by injuries that occur under our management. And you have to talk to friends and figure out how you can do it better the next time. You have to keep very close relationship with the family, irrespective of whether they come back to you for management. And you have to do the most you can for the child. Most of our complications are not terribly severe. Maybe you do an osteotomy and have a recurrent deformity. And if the family understands that that's a possibility, it's usually not an issue. But I think the, the key to most of our surgical complications is making sure the patient's very well educated and that the expectations of the patient and the surgeon match. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think that for me personally, the complications, and it really doesn't matter what the underlying patient condition is, whether it be, you know, a completely normal health-wise, no other related syndromes or complex skeletal dysplasia or spina bifida or, or what have you, the complications always are, are challenging. I think the thing that has always drawn me into continuing to care for them is that the upside it can be so great when you are able to put all of the planning together to you know, execute a wonderful surgery or sometimes not even operate on them, which I think is probably better in certain situations, and still have a wonderful result. The upside benefit can be even more, I think, in this specific population, which is what I love so much about them. But you bring up a lot of great points there. 
So I'm curious because you're, you've obviously, you've got a son who now practices with you and you've created this excellent, beautiful practice over the course of your career that's a little bit unique as you were relating in the country. Um, although Clayton's done a nice job of trying to replicate side of things. What's your transition plan for this? How do you make sure that the next generation has a Will McKenzie or a, a, a big champion and can benefit from all the things that you've built at your center? Well, I have to consider several transitions. So I am the chair. I've been the chair since the mid-2000s, actually 2005, I think. And I have to transition the chair. I have to transition my relationship with the skeletal dysplasia group. And of course, we all have other things we're involved in. And I think the transition plan for the chair and for the skeletal dysplasia program are linked. So the most important thing is to make sure that succession is outlined and established early. As you can imagine, we have several people in our department that are very interested in becoming the chair. will probably be an external search. It'll probably be within the next two to three years. And I think I have one reasonably clear successor in that area. I'm working with that individual to understand the unique aspects of this job. In dysplasia, Mike Bober and I have worked hard. We now, as I mentioned, we have a uh, geneticist who will be being his successor eventually. Stuart was just very, very fortunate bit of luck for me. He came out of Columbia. We did not expect him to want to come here to do fellowship, which he did. And it became apparent that one of the reasons he did that is that he was very interested in dysplasia. And he's uniquely positioned, as I was many years ago, in that he has very good spine training and has pretty good extremity training. And it's just been absolutely fabulous for me to have him here and work with him. Tell me about that. We've talked a little bit offline about our children, your children, because uh, you have a former lacrosse goalie and I was a lacrosse goalie and I have a daughter who's a lacrosse goalie and she wants to become, as she says, a children's pediatric orthopedist. And obviously as a parent, there's no joy that would probably be greater than having the opportunity to work with a child and stay you know, that close with your child um, you know, as, as they graduate into adulthood. Tell me about that experience with Stuart and what you've learned and how you've been able to make the transition from dad to partner who's also dad, um, where you can be you know, somewhat critical of his, of his thought processes when need to, but supportive in a way that maybe others can't. <laughs> well, he is the, uh, the more mature of the two of us <laughs> <laughs> by far. He's always been a, a very interesting individual my career has been reasonably traditional, right? I left medicine, I went into orthopedics, I did a fellowship, I went into practice. Stewart's done a lot of very interesting things. He got a, a degree in Boston in nutrition, basically in AIDS. And he ended up in Zambia for a year and a half where he uh, did Paul Farmer type work and then worked for an NGO with people who had AIDS. While he was there, he rode with the Zambian national cycling team and developed a huge spectrum of friendships in that world. He ran a small sailing company out of the British Virgin Islands. All three of my kids are very accomplished sailors. They can jump on a 60-foot 
uh, yacht and, and sail it uh, without difficulty, something that I do not have those skills. So when he came into medicine, he had already had a life experience that made him a very mature, thoughtful person. He and I share some skills in interpersonal relationships. I think that that's something that will serve him well in the future. He's someone who can create an environment with people that will work as a team. Something that I find that um, there are leaders in our country who forget that being a leader is not just an egocentric person who creates an environment that suits their needs. Being a modern leader is creating a diverse group that will work as a team to accomplish something that will be significantly better than the sole person driving the team or the department or the whatever. And so how's that process been for you so far? I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> Luckily, he's a good surgeon. And yep. uh, that would have been difficult. Yeah, it would have been. He probably would have come back if he wasn't. Yeah. So he is developing his own group of patients. And I don't feel any angst giving any of that up. <laughs> There's a lot of fun in watching him evolve. And I'm sure he will have a very different flavor. I'm sure he'll do a better job at evolving the team than I had in building it. But it's interesting, you, you know, you mentioned earlier that you would talk to John. Well, you know, John and his father still talk almost every day. It's crazy. Multiple it's times really a day. It's really interesting, yeah. so, isn't it? And we do too. We're just lucky we work in the same place. Down the hall. Yeah. 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 That's, I mean, it's so cool. But it's funny because I, you said it's great that he's a good surgeon. I've got a 12 year old. So in a couple of years, I hope that she's a good driver. But this is probably a, an order of magnitude <laughs> above watching, you know, your son or your daughter do circles around a parking lot, you know, as you're bare knuckling or a white knuckling rather the, uh, the edge of the seat. Well, that's, uh, that's great. It's, uh, it's got to be just the coolest thing in the world to be able to see him every day. Yes, it is wonderful. It is wonderful. Something that we didn't get a chance to talk about that I thought we might is all the individuals. I don't look back as having one mentor or one person who was absolutely critical for my career. I wrote down a list of people that I have met and learned from over the years, and it is pages long. And I think that for the young surgeon, talk to everyone that you can. Go and visit people. Even if you visit someone for a day or two, go and listen to them, see what they do, see what their take is on it. Someone we all know, Bob Salter, you know, uh, he, he had his pluses and minuses, but he was a wonderful man. And I was a resident presenting. Remember I told you I taught a year of anatomy and did research? And yeah. I was presenting my research on, if you can believe it, the innervation of the knee menisci. <laughs> and I presented it in Toronto and I sat down and, you know, it was, a, it was at a research meeting and, you know, I, I thought no one here knows anything I'm talking about. And I sat down and this guy sat down beside me and he started chatting to me. He wanted to know who he was and what I was going to do and what I was interested in. And guess who it was? Bob, was Bob Salter. Salter. Wow. Because he could see people that he thought might be of value. And 
he saw a young kid presenting in a stage, a subject that he couldn't care less about, but saw that this person may be someone who could add something to our world. And so he went and chatted with me. And so I try and do the same with other people. Bob and I became good friends later in life. And he probably never even realized what he was doing by just chatting to that young orthopedic resident. So it's funny you say that because I was recalling to my wife how you and I met. Now, you may not remember it, but it stands out uh, well to me. For the listeners, we are not too far away from one another. And so a lot of Atlanta families with Skeldish Plages go to the Mecca and seek out either primary or secondary advice from you. And I had taken care of some families who had traveled up to Wilmington to see you. And so at IPOS, we were both faculty, and we were at the Mexican restaurant, and you offered to buy me a margarita, which was funny, of course, because it was the faculty dinner. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you said, I want to learn <laughs> about you. And I said, great. And we sat down and had a wonderful 45-minute or hour-long conversation. We ended up going out to dinner together. And, you know, one of the beauties of IPOS, I think, for not just for the, the faculty where that, that's sort of a little bit forced because you do have that session, but for all of the learners as well is the fact that you have such great access to such a, a wonderful group of people, both, you know, really at all levels of training, because we're all still training on some level. And so that's how you and I sort of met. I don't think I'd, I'd seen you give presentations and heard you talk a number of times, but that was our first meeting. And I, I mean, it still sticks out very fondly in my mind. Well, I was trying to investigate that guy who was starting to operate on kids with skeletal dysplasia in Atlanta. Make sure that he was okay. I wanted to find out if he was someone I wanted to encourage or not. <laughs> well, out. well, Will, I, uh, as I said, we were going to uh, try to sort of keep this uh, around an hour. I could, as has been the case with all of these conversations that I've had, I could we could extend this for two more hours and I'd be perfectly content. But I cannot thank you enough. This has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed learning about you. And as I've said, I've really enjoyed getting to know you and building a friendship there. So thank you for everything. And I look forward to continuing to hear about you know, your strategies up at DuPont and you know, hearing about Stuart's transition and everything as we go forward. Well, it's been a fun time chatting with you, Nick, and your thoughts about how this discussion should evolve were very well thought out. And I appreciate the opportunity to chat and tell my story, and I'm happy you're interested in it. And I'll look forward to watching your career evolve. Well, thank you, Will. I appreciate it. And thanks to all the listeners for continuing to support this. 